0: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. <laughs> Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us.
1: That first verse that was read is quite striking. Verse 15 of 1 John 2. Do not love the world. Um. Striking because it's hard to make sense of, and uh, as we think through it as Christians, we've been talking about love now for a number of months. Talking about the nature of God's love as as a different kind of love, and a love that heals and restores and renews. And what we've been doing in the sermon series is applying uh, an understanding from the Bible of love to these four relationships we've identified at Emmanuel as priorities, for our work, we say we're committed to the restoration and renewal of relationships with God, within ourselves, with others, and with the world. And so as we've been going through the sermon series, we've been looking at love and love for God and how God's love renews ourself and how it changes how we relate to others. We're now in the last stretch of the sermon series where we're talking about love for the world, but here we're told not to love the world. So is there something different that we're called to? Um, I think what happens is this exposes how we naturally think. And of course, the Bible is trying to expand how we think. Because our view of spirituality would make sense to say, of course, the Bible wants us to love God. And it would make sense that if God loves us, it would renew us and make us healthier, better people. And of course, that change will work its way out to how we treat others. Most of us envision spirituality having that. But then saying, now you go into the world with that love in order to love the world it actually makes sense that we would be warned don't do that (laughs) don't love the world well what's john saying because what 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 i what i'm hoping to say to you in this uh, sermon series is that as these relationships are renewed it changes our relationship to the world so that we can go into the world with god's love is the bible telling us not to do that and no that's not what i think is happening Uh, but it's a reminder here that when we read a book like first john where there are these dualities of light and darkness um, and good and evil, then when the contrast of god 's love and the world 's love, we often think of it in terms of the categories we most relate to, like spiritual versus material, and we think, okay, of course, love for God and, and love of the soul and love for other people make sense, but material things we have to be warned not to to love in that sense. I think John is saying something that 's that's harder for us to get, but is much more profound, because the contrast is not between the spiritual and the material, because then the passage that we're going to focus on today, 1 John 3, says, if anyone has the world's goods and yet sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him, how is the love of God in him? Well, first of all, if if anyone has the world's goods, is it appropriate that a Christian would actually have any goods? Secondly, if if it's just about spirituality, why would we care if, if the person is in need, in terms of a tangible need, if they're hungry? Uh, why would that matter? What, you know, if, if we're concerned with the spiritual, we can pray for their encouragement, but if they're starving, that's just the body, that's just food. Um, clearly, the same John who warns us not to love the world is also bringing correction to Christians who are misunderstanding by their lack of action what spirituality looks like as we embrace the love of God. John is not contrasting the spiritual and the material. He's contrasting a a form of love that is natural that comes up from the world and a form of love that's supernatural that comes into the world through God. When he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, he's saying, uh, don't get caught up in the way that the world loves and what it values. But he is telling us that when the love of God comes into your life, you should bring that out into the world. Because after all, the theology of John gives us the very famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So is it that God loves the world, but we should not? No, the way that God loves the world is how we should love the world. John is warning us, but there's a way that we naturally and instinctively love the world. And that's what he's warning us against. Uh, And so in verse 16 of, of 1 John 2, He gives us the description of, I think, what he's trying to correct for all that is in the world. And here's, here's, I think, a helpful description. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So John is not saying don't love the world. Don't take the love from the Father and bring it into the world. He's saying when you go into the world, watch out for the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life those cravings that you have that mean that you will not act in love, but you'll act against others in your own self-interest, the things that you see that become idolatrous, Uh, the pride of life where you need to be better than others. Those things are natural instincts that sometimes can feel like love. I mean, if you're prideful and successful, the the emotion could feel like love, uh, but there's a warning of a corruption in that. And so we're told that that you're not to love the things of the world or love as the world loves, but, but there's something from the Father. And if we have that, then as we go into the world, we love. Uh, a, a word that I think is helpful, that has fallen out of uh, the vocabulary of this kind of discussion is the word, if you read the King James, translated in the 17th century. Uh, so the, the New Testament is written in Greek but but so much theology from the 4th or 5th century on was done in Latin that that Latin influenced the translation of the King James. And so, so the passage we began, 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about faith, hope, and love. Uh, there's numerous New Testament passages bringing those three together, but that's what our series is about. The King James talks about faith, love, and charity. And that word charity is interesting. Um, And it's fallen out of favor because now when we think of charity, we think of institutions. A charity is an organization that meets needs and provides help to the poor. But on an individual level, charity becomes a little bit harder because charity already plays into if the pride of life is at work in any component of the relationship, my providing charity creates a power dynamic where I'm the one who has the world's goods and you're the one who has need. And rather than seeing us as brothers where there's a sharing, the way the world loves, the way the pride of life works, is that somehow in that that transaction, it fosters pride in the giver and humiliation in the receiver. And so we're uncomfortable talking about charity because we've seen as it works out that as you show charity to people, there's something potentially demeaning. And so we've gotten more comfortable with the word love, but I know when I became a Christian, uh, the, the the message of love in Christianity was not the thing that drew me in because my conception of love, what I had learned of, of love and, and maybe cynically thought of it, was that love was an emotion that was somewhat shallow and superficial and it, and it's used to manipulate people. <laughs> and so the message of Christianity that God loves, that that didn't draw me in. It's years of understanding the love of God that helps me to see how central it is. But I think as an early... Christian, if I would have been told about charity, that would have drawn me in. I think I would have been excited about the fact of saying, wait a second, there's an action by which you can help one another, that you could bring change. I think that would have seemed substantial, but while love seemed romantic and superficial. And, and uh, I'm introducing the word charity but just because there's a, a tradition, and in, in certainly from Reformation Christianity on, where the word charity is meant to represent something that's right. It's, it's a different love than the world. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's the contrast to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, the pride of life. But there's a love that comes from God that makes needy people able to share with other needy people. That's the Christian transformation. And so it's that process that God's love can do that makes us love the world differently to make us charitable in the best sense of the word so that when we love it's God's love flowing through us. And, and what I want to talk about today is where we get stuck because what, what uh, the verses we're looking at 16 to 18 in first John three are call to action. So charity coming from the Greek word agape, this love from God that's different than the the way the world loves, is is a love that that is described as deed and truth. And so there's truth, there's philosophy, there's theology, there's ideology behind it. But the invisible God, who became visible in Christ, calls us to take his invisible love and make it visible through our actions, through the way we relate to the world. Uh, And therefore, John raises the question, if you say that you're abiding in God's love, (laughs) but your actions are not reflecting it in the situations where you should be loving as Christ loves, well, then we need to question, are we loving with the love of God in us or are we still trapped in the desires of the eyes and the flesh? Is the pride of life still the kind of love that's at work in us? And what I want to talk about today, uh, I think trying to narrow down on a focus of just how do we become more actionable, John gives us something that I think Highlights just one moment in the process that goes wrong. So there's a lot we need to reflect on. It's a lifelong of reflection of how do we take the love of God and become people who consistently act? One sermon's not going to do that. Today I want to talk about one focal point. So where I want to begin is by talking about a corrupted process. And the process that I'm talking about, John is writing to Christians and he's saying, if the love of God is in you, why is the love of God not coming out from you? Where do you get stuck where you see somebody in need and you don't act? That's what John is challenging. He's challenging us. To action not just a blind foolish action not random action but an action that keeps the process of God's love in your life flowing out to others and so I have three questions as we think through this that you see in the passage the questions are what do you have what do you see and what do you do and I want this to just be a paradigm that maybe we could think about this passage this week as we go to action what do you have what do you see what do you do So so the passage identifies for us in verse 17. That's where I get these questions from. What do you have? Well, you have the world's goods. So that's one answer. What do you see? You see a brother in need. And then what do you do? Now, the interesting thing is, John doesn't tell us what to do. He doesn't say the obvious thing is you sell your possessions and give money. Or he doesn't say you give half of it or you give 20% of it. Or he doesn't say you invite the person to live with you. What's interesting is, The creative option of what to do is left to us. But it's supposed to be a visible expression, a tangible manifestation of love. And where we get stuck in not knowing what to do, because that process is, that situation is one that that creates a conflict in us. I have the world's goods, and I see a person in need. And that should immediately stir joy and opportunity. I can make a sacrifice to God by sharing. But in our corrupted world, it's not easy. Do I just share? Will that actually enable somebody? That's kind of in our moral thinking, a question that comes up. Um, but is that just a justification? Is it that in our pride of life, are we actually seeing ourselves as those who have the world's goods as being better and there's resentment <laughs> That now, why do I, who have killed myself to get this stuff, have to give to this person who didn't? Those are the kinds of thoughts. There's lots of thoughts that we have in those moments, but they're troubling thoughts. One thought is, I have the world's goods and I want to be faithful and I believe God has provided. And now this person that doesn't have them is inviting me to action and I feel ashamed. I feel like maybe I've loved the world too much in acquiring these goods. That situation where you have and somebody else doesn't have creates an emotional conflict in us. And the emotional conflict where the love of God is in us should resolve through some action, but we don't know what that action is. That's why we love rules and principles. If we're just told, whatever you have, just give, or give 10%, or sell it, or invite the person in, if we have the, the rule, then we know what to do, but we don't have the rule. We're told, God has set you free to love. Take the Spirit in you and love. And well meaning people so there are greedy people, and we're in the church, and we have to confess that, but there are well meaning people who believe the gospel. But we have the world's goods and we see people in need and that conflict then exposes that we have the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. So what do we do? John doesn't pinpoint for us, this is what you do. This is the action. This is where you failed. In verse 17, he says, I think, what is, what is a turning point. The question he raises is, is, is what do you do? Not how do you respond to the person, but, but where does your countenance change? And so what do you have? You have the world's goods. What do you see? A brother in need. What do you do? He says, yet closes his heart against him. So that's not what you've done. That's not an action, but it's a turning off of the valve. The love of God is in you. How will the love of God go out from you? And because we don't like existing in discomfort, we we don't like that emotional state of feeling shamed, of feeling powerless, of wanting to do the right thing and not knowing what to do. And so what do we do? We start to, to close the painful heart and we shut off the love of God. So now this is not a brother, but it's somebody who we're against. We're not meaning to be against the person, but we've got the world's goods and they don't. And we don't know what to do. And, and we harden our hearts because it's better than existing in the pain and the risk of doing the wrong thing. And that's the moment I want us to reflect on. What do you have? What do you see? What do you do? There's lots of things you could do. The Bible's not telling you exactly what to do. It's not unfolding a program. But the warning here is, well, here's something that you shouldn't do. You should not close your heart against him. And that is something for us to reflect on as we, as we want to be rooted in the love of God and abide in it. And we want, it to, we want to take it with us. Where does the process get corrupted? There's a number of points. For this week, it gets corrupted in the moment where we close our hearts. And that could look like a variety of things. That could look like giving to a person who asks you that closing the heart is not, I hate them and I'm not gonna give, but it could be, I can't continue in the feeling of shame that I have so much. So my giving is an action that allows me to close this transaction so I can go back to it. That's how complicated we are. And uh, I was reading this week, there's a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who has a book, uh, a book on ethics, and, and he shared a story in it that I thought was was helpful or an analogy that comes from an older uh, Jewish thinking. He didn't name the person, so I don't know who it is. But in Israel, if you're familiar with the geography of Israel at all, uh, there are two, uh, what they identify as seas, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the, the Dead Sea. I don't think they're actually seas in terms of uh, how scientists conceive of bodies of water, but they were called the Dead Sea. In the south, the Sea of Galilee in the north. Uh, now, if you ever visit Israel, the, Galilee is this area with, uh, with trees and, and growth and development. And the, the reason that, that dead is put in, in the phrase dead sea is because the, the water is so salty and it's in this deserty kind of area. My understanding is the lowest body of water on the face of the earth. Um, it's not, it's not a, a habitable environment. So if you're a Bible reader, you read Jesus and his disciples, Peter the fisherman, out on the Sea of Galilee catching all this fish, the Sea of Galilee, a life-giving place, the Dead Sea, a place where, where uh, people can't thrive, uh, living beings can't thrive, and so tourists go, go there to get the salt to heal their skin and to practice floating because of the density of the, the salt in relation to the water, but not good for fish. Uh, what he raises is, is actually there's a, the, the river, the Jordan, that connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. It's the same, same water source. And, and what's the difference? (laughs) And I think modern scientific study might come up with numerous differences. uh, But what's highlighted in this ancient sage thinking is that the Jordan flows into the Dead Sea, but it never leaves the Dead Sea, whereas the Jordan flows uh, in terms of the Sea of Galilee, where there are outlets, water comes into the Sea of Galilee and out of the Sea of Galilee. And that same source flowing in, I think what John is trying to challenge us is there's a love from the world that comes up and will corrupt you. But there's also a love from God who will pour into you. But the thing is, is the love of God going out from you? And if the love of God is going out from you, as it comes in and as it goes out, it's creating this hospitable environment where life grows. But if you close your heart against people, it's not that the love of God will build up with such degree that you will overflow to greater acts of love. Uh, but the love of God will start to evaporate where all of a sudden the salt in it will, 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 will not make you more salty, but will make you so salty that, that it's not a, a life-giving environment, something for the church to think about. John is talking about this process where, where when you have the opportunity to take the love that God has given to you and to manifest it, if you don't do it, it's going to change the way you see you're going to resent the person or you're going to hate yourself. I'm not good enough. Why was I so selfish to have these things or what's with this uh, lazy person that they depend on me? Those are the kinds of thoughts that, that come once we shut off the the valve of love in the backup, how we see, how we change uh, or how we see and how we think changes. And we wind up that the influence of the desires of the flesh and of the eyes, the pride of life, reshape us so that the process is never completed. So how do we get to a process that is more likely to be completed where, where the love of God in us goes out from us so that not only are we healthy in relation to the world, but we are life giving hospitable people. That's what I want to talk about next. Um, Not an easy answer, but a productive process has to be involved where, where there's not a closing of our hearts, but there's an opening of our hearts and it begins in John's theology with the love of God that comes into our lives. And so before he calls us to action, in verse 16 of 1 John 3, he says, By this we know love. So there there are the faulty, corrupt loves that pass for love that we get caught up in. John is saying, but now we know a different kind of love, agape, charity, the charity of God, his love towards us. Now that we know it, that will, that knowledge will change how we see. And we will act justly. And so how do we know it? It comes in deed and in truth. It comes through the truth of a message, the claim, God is love. It's not that we loved, but God first loved us. And so there's theology, there's philosophy, there's ideas. God loves, but there's deed. And that for John is what's so powerful. God didn't just say he loved us and send a messenger to tell us he loved us, but the messenger he sent, his own son, did something, his deed. That's what 1 John 3.16 says. We know love that he laid down his life for us. There's an action at the heart of Christianity. It's not just that we want to believe in a God who loves, but we believe in a God who has loved. We have something to ground us in history. God loved us. How did he love us? How do we know the difference of the love of God? Well, he laid down his life for us. And as human beings, we're told this love is different, but we can be shaped by it and be different kind of people. So we have the warning in verse 12, don't be like Cain. You know, when Eve has Cain, she she names him saying, I have gotten a child of the Lord, ironically naming the boy Cain, which means God, (laughs) who then becomes somebody who grows up. And he's, he's somebody who takes, he's a taker. You have his brother Abel who prospers and Cain takes his life because of his bitterness and resentment. And what we're told is that's what happens when the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life are at work in you. You resent rather than loving. You take rather than giving. And we now know the love, because it's the love of God, that he lay down his life for us. Uh, Cain strikes down the life of his brother. Jesus lays down his life for his brother. Cain famously says, am I my brother's keeper? Jesus comes and says the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. Um, The love of Christ is entirely different. And we're told if we know this love, then our love towards others is not a hardening of the heart where we shift blame and we hide, but where we take what we have and we go forward and, and we give sacrificially. So it raises the question, do you know love? And the Bible's prescription for knowing love is not to look within or without, but to look up, to look to God who loves. And not just to know that he feels love and extends it towards you, but he has done something for you. He has loved you. Jesus laid down his life. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it, but you need it. And in your need, the one who had all of the world lay <laughs> uh, down his life. He didn't close his heart towards you. That's the Christian message. And we're told when that flows into you, it creates a life-giving environment. So what flows out of you will take that shape. So now let's revisit our paradigm, these three questions. What do you have? What do you see? And what do you do? So you have the world's goods. You see your brother in need. What do you do? That's open. But if you know the love of God, you have deeper, more fundamental questions. What do you have? You have agape. You have charity. You have the love of God. What do you see? We see Jesus who laid down his life for us. That's how we know the love of God, that he laid down his life for us. So, what do you do? And God doesn't tell you, but he says, But my commandment is that you love. So, don't harden your heart. But if what you have is the love of God and what you see is Jesus who sacrifices himself, what do you do? You do that. Now it's going to be the hard work of taking the shape. So then you go into your tangible situation. What do I have? I have the world's goods, but I also have the love of God. So I may still have the pride of life in me. I may still have the desires of the eyes in me. But as I look at the world's goods, I look at the love of God. I have them both. And so I don't need to give the goods. I need to give God's love. But, but what do I see? Well, I see Jesus who sacrificed himself, and I see a brother in need. In this case, if I have the world's goods, as I take the love of God, And give it in light of what I see. I see Jesus who was willing to lay down his life. And so, Christian love by nature will be sacrificial. This situation that's hard, and I don't like existing in the hardness of it, I don't need to quickly shut off my heart, but I need to find ways for for the outlet of the love of God to come out. And so, what do I do? Each person, each situation is different. Don't close your heart, but the commandment is that you love. You love as Jesus has loved. He laid down his life so there's a sacrificial love. And it's that kind of action that we're called to. You know, we're living in a, a time period right now where, uh, where there's another moment in history where a community for years that's been crying out for action, for justice, is once again crying out. And what they're saying is not see us and pity us. They're saying, will there be, cha- will there be action? Will this moment be different? Or is this another social media spin in advance of a troubling election? And will we be forgotten in January after everyone's read the books and had the seminars and marched? Is anyone gonna act with change? And that's a convicting question because in our sincerity, we want to, as our culture says, be the change. But what happens is change is hard. So what happens is when we exist in the impossibility and the confusion and the corruption everywhere, we can't take it and what we do is we we close off our hearts. We don't mean to be against anyone, but we wind up getting caught up in the polarization in society because our current troubles are such that you have to pick a side. There's always somebody right and there's always somebody wrong. And the Christian is told you have to enter that confusing mess and not get pulled to the sides, but you need to have the love of God You need to see the sacrifice of Jesus and you can't close your heart. And so what are you going to do? You're going to need to take God's love and be filled with it. And you need to look for the ways to send it out. And that's what's not offered to us. Spirituality says retreat and feel God's love and deal with your feelings. And secularism says, get out there. We don't care what you think, but you need to fight. Both of those are going to offer no change or problematic change. And what we're told for John, his question for us: if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him, how can the love of God be in him? And what we're told is abide in the love of God, remain in that. Don't don't get pulled out of it, don't get caught up. But the love of God is sacrificial, it's giving. So so in this new paradigm, we're called to a different way. And 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 here's the last thing I want to talk about. This is the, the third point for those of you who have the outline in the If you've downloaded the bulletin, a process towards being charitable. How do we we go from being people who who keep falling short of action because action is hard and we close our hearts to being people who take the love of God and more consistently sacrifice, who who, who act justly, who act with generosity and compassion? Um, In the process towards being charitable, um, being charitable is about this sacrificial love. But, but, but here's the thing. What, what are you laying down your life before we, we sacrifice our possessions for the brother in need? The charitable person has already sacrificed himself because he's seen the greater love of God. He, he has given up his, his right to the desires of the flesh. The person who knows the love of God gives up pursuing the desires of the eyes. The person who has, has become charitable because of God's love poured into him has renounced the pride of life. The first laying down of our life is there to say, I, I, I don't want anything more to do with this this corrupt way of, of doing things. I don't want the love that's natural to me. I want the supernatural love that God pours into me. And when I have that, and when I see Jesus who sacrificed himself, then what will I do? It will It will be love, and it will be charitable, but the kind of charitable that that actually is commendable. And this is where I'm not necessarily arguing for a reinsertion of vocabulary. Language changes over time. Charitable may be the wrong word. Love may be the right word. Uh, but I feel like love, as we talk about it, has run its course. So now that love is a little bit shallow and superficial. It's interesting when you look at the process of, of the term charitable. Now, this is not coming uh, out of a study from the Oxford English Dictionary. And so I'm not giving it an etymological theory, but I'm, I'm talking about how how society has changed over the last 500 years since the King James announcing that we should be charitable. Uh, You know, secular humanism, which said, why don't we take these principles? Because after all, isn't that principle to love your brother so powerful that if we just do that, it's enough. And what John is saying is you need to love your brother, but you need to love your brother with the love of God in you. And when you cut yourself off from the love of God, there's not enough love in you, so if anything is to go out, you need a source of being filled. And so secular humanism said, it's enough to love our brother. We don't, we don't need to define the love of God. And we found over time that, that the word charity started to become uh, a hard word instead of a, a great word. So we still reserve it for institutions because that's impersonal. Let there be a charity. Let them do charity. Because now you're not dealing with real people, but between me and a human being. If the love of God is not in me, then my charity takes the flavor of the world, which is if I have the world's goods and I see a brother in need, there's an evaluation of of my being in the better position or my potentially being the more valuable human or my being more deserving of holding on to what I have. And as soon as we cross the line to say, and yet I'm going to give, where it comes out of the pride of life, there's no having the other person receive it without feeling that. Of saying thank you for giving and meeting my need, but now I feel less than human, and and so in an in a desire to humanize, we've uh, we've undivinized, so that charity has has taken the influences of our natural loves, and something so good as sharing what we have, has become prideful for the giver and demeaning for the receiver. And the Christian perspective of before you give to anyone, look to what God has done. What you have is not love. You have the love of God. What you see is not you and an opportunity, but you see Christ who lay down his life. So what do you do? There's us and there's the poor, but theologically there's God and there's us. And that divide is so great and it says all of you are needy. And when you know that you are a person in need and somehow God has loved you not to make you feel any less, but somehow to build you up now we go into the world not as those who have the world's goods and see a brother in need but we go into the world as somebody who needs but has the love of god and now we see a brother in need and it's not that we have and they don't but we have something different than what they have and so we share (laughs) Uh, and our sharing doesn't make us better people it makes god more glorious and when they see the generosity of god rather than your generosity they become more glorious because what flows into us is God's agape. What flows out of us is God's agape. And what John says is that is abiding in the love of God. Let's not love with talk. Let's not talk about how wonderful God's love is, but let's love with deed and in truth. Do you believe the truth that the love of God is that he sacrificed himself for you? Do you have that love? Well, then your actions should flow from it. And as we as a church are talking about how do we love the world, we're starting to talk about our actions. Last week we talked about evangelism. This week I hinted at our relationship to the poor. But we want to be reformed so that when the love of God is in us, when we read the the, the verse, don't love the world, we're not told go back to church. But we're told don't love as the world loves. Um, But stay rooted in the love of God. And then don't close your heart. But act boldly, sacrificially, Endure suffering if it's called to, because God calls us to love the world differently. And that's what I would encourage you to do. So this week, that's enough to think about where do you close your heart? Where does that temptation come? Resist closing your heart and look for ways to keep creatively having the love of God in any specific situation come out from you. And as you practice that, that's where the love of God uh, does its healthy work in our lives. Let me pray for us. Our Father, I assume everyone here wants to be people who act uprightly, who act justly for our own conscience, for the reward that we get, believing that if the world has justice still woven into it, that if we do good things, our lives will be better. Or do we want to be deeply rooted in love, and we want to feel love, and we don't want to feel ashamed. We don't want to feel conflicted. We don't want to judge others. We don't want to judge ourselves. And yet we get stuck, and so Lord, we come to you as a people who who keep getting stuck, and we keep not acting in love, and we keep making others feel bad and we feel bad, and we want to change. And so, Lord, help us to know your love. Help us to know that that your love is a love of truth. That the message is true because you, who are love, declared and proclaimed it. But also, uh, Lord, that you have a deed that we could point to. You loved us in Christ. He actually gave everything so that we who had nothing could have all that is his Lord, made that so grip our hearts, fill us with the spirit. So as we go into the world, we don't love as the world loves and we don't get pulled out of the love that you have loved us with. And we don't close off that love, but we open our hearts towards anyone around us who has need. And as people who have need that we would share whatever you've given to us, do that work so that in our lives, And in the lives of anyone in the world we encounter, you would receive glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.